0: The Bible is a big book. For a church to teach through all of its stories in any meaningful way would take years. So, what usually happens is certain stories and characters slip through the cracks. For those of us who have spent any amount of time in church, we probably know a good deal about Abraham, Moses, David, and Jonah. We certainly should know about Jesus. But there's a good chance we haven't heard much about Deborah, or Phoebe or Mary, or Priscilla. So, in this series, we hope to rediscover the important and often untold stories of women in the Bible. We appreciate you listening. May these stories compel us all to contemplate the beautiful and sometimes overlooked diversity of God's people. We are more than half the church.
1: So in the book of 2 Timothy, the author is writing to Timothy and he is imploring Timothy and encouraging Timothy to remember the faith that Timothy has, to remember um, the background and the training, if you will, the traditions that Timothy has received from his family. And that leads to this uh, very well-known classic text where the author says, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful or profitable for teaching and rebuke and correcting and training in righteousness so that the person of God can be fully equipped for every good Work. This text has been well known in many circles to try to prove the inspiration of the Bible that God had some sort of a, um, a hand involved in every word that we now have in our Bibles. All scripture, it says, is God breathed. And not only that, not only does scripture come from God, but scripture is all useful for something and the author gives us different categories of that. But as I think about this verse and as I contemplate its usefulness in my own life and in the lives of those around us, I think that when we quantify all scripture as being useful, what we're really saying is we are dialing into certain scriptures. And on the outside are all of the other scriptures that we might find to be less useful or less applicable or less profitable for teaching and rebuke and correcting and training in righteousness. I know that not many of you are flipping open your body each morning to go to the book of Numbers and, and, and find out about the impurity laws about bodily functions and things. I don't think that that's what we're doing. Can I get an amen? It's okay to, for you to speak to me. I don't. There's there's other passages in the Bible where we might find them to be more useful. In other words, what scholars would say is we have a canon within a canon. We have certain texts that we privilege within the Bible itself, within the 66 books that have been ordained to be our guide for life and practice and godliness. We have certain texts that, that we resonate with for many of us, that might be we go to the New Testament, we are New Testament people because that tells us the story of Jesus, and the Old Testament is really old, and we can't really get we can't get bogged down with that. The New Testament includes the gospel and Jesus life and death and resurrection, and the Old testament that's not for us except for all those cute stories. The cute stories that aren 't really so cute. one of my professors talked about having uh, this picture of Noah's ark on his mantle, like around the kids' rooms or whatever. And it's got the, the stereotypical ark and it's got all the, the giraffes and the elephants and the animals. And it's really cute and everything's really nice. And one day he was just walking by, he's an Old Testament scholar, Harvard PhD. And he says, this story is about everybody dying. But we kind of pawn it off as a cute kid's story. You've heard this anecdote from me before, where we see like, well, the Old Testament, except for all the cute story stuff, or maybe the Psalms. Some people really go crazy about how they have the pocket New Testaments, and then they throw the Psalms on the back of those, but no other uh, texts from the Old Testament, or maybe the Proverbs. Like we, we make exceptions to what we deem to be important, but not Leviticus. Leviticus is not important except for those couple of things that some of us might like from Leviticus that we hold on to. Like even within this, we're making exceptions about what is all scripture and what is not so much scripture in practice, not in theory, but in practice, the way that we read and the way that we approach. Maybe we love the gospels and other books kind of go out to the periphery or maybe we like Paul and we can really dig into what Paul is saying because Paul was a huge nerd and Paul practiced all these really cool uh, ways of interpreting within the Jewish community in the first century. Like you guys, Nerd out about that, and you think of Paul like as this ancient rabbi doing midrash and rereading the Old Testament, and that really gets you going. I can tell it does. But maybe for others, it's just what's applicable and what's not applicable, or what's easy and what's not easy. All this to say that when we apply that passage about all scripture being profitable or useful, it's really not usually all scripture. For a lot of us, there are certain passages that resonate and hold truth, and there's other things that we kind of don't know what to do with, so we kind of push them off to the side. Now, my job as a pastor, the way that some people have talked about this, is I am uh, supposed to be preaching the whole counsel of God, which is difficult when we dedicate 30 or so minutes a week to that. And it takes me 66 weeks to get through the book of Mark. Like we can cross that one off and we've got 65 to go, that sort of thing. But another way you can phrase this is our job is to preach or teach all of scripture. But within the church, there's important and oftentimes untold stories specifically about women that stay outside on the periphery. Now, can we just address the, the elephant in the room real quick? I am a middle-class white man t- doing a series on women and the stories about women in the Bible, okay? That's not as desirable as it could be or should be, but we're gonna give it our best effort here. Some of these passages about women have, have played their role like out on the periphery and they don't get a lot of play within the American church context for a variety of reasons, and if we wanted to explore what those reasons are why these stories are untold, we could get ourselves bogged down into any number of issues, whether they be theological or political or sociological in nature. There are many reasons why people don't want to touch some of these stories, but today I want to um, just give us this to consider, and as we launch into this series, I want us to, to think through this. Within our cultural context, I think it is more often the case that we don't talk about these stories because we have forgotten. Maybe because we have forgotten their importance or their relevance. Maybe because we don't deem these characters to be as important as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob or Moses and David. We don't see how these connect to us as we sit here and now, and there's good precedent for us forgetting some of these stories. And and the story that I want to tell this evening, it's rough. Okay, so if you were here for uh, our time of prayer for uh, the folks that lost their lives and the families, and and we're just kind of digging into that very real, very tragic moment in our specific context, even though we're far removed from. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Many of us still feel that weight. Parents feel that weight when you send your kids off to school. Maybe you haven't thought about whether they would live or die when they come back, but now maybe you do. Teachers, as you go into your work, I know that you've done lockdown drills and you've done things like that, but now maybe you might think a bit differently about those things, and it seems as though we are becoming less removed from these tragedies. When this story tonight on the heels of something like that is tragic we have forgotten the importance of some of these stories, and we see precedent of that within our own scriptures. Now, tonight, what I want to talk about is the book of Judges. And I wanna talk about uh, the literary nature of the book of Judges because it is a beautifully penned work of art. When a lot of you guys say the New Testament's cool and the Old Testament is not cool, you are wrong because there's a lot of great stuff in the Old Testament. The way that these folks told stories is so beautiful. But throughout the book of Judges, we see what scholars have referred to as the cycle of sin, which is probably best seen as sort of a, a downward spiral where things get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until they finally grotesquely climax in the end of the book in Judges 19 through 21. We will not talk about that uh, this evening, but here we are going to be looking for a moment of the cycle of sin in Judges where Israel, who is now into the promised land, God has given them this land. They have gone in. They have taken control of the land. There are foreigners still within their midst, but the people in the land have peace until the people of God start following other folks and doing evil in the sight of the Lord, it says. And at that time, Israel becomes oppressed. God gives them over to their oppressors, whether they be the Philistines or the Ammonites or the Moabites, or as my old pastor used to say, or the Mosquito Bites, But not bum ching God gives them over, that joke works, and I'm sad that it does, and I'm sad that I can't stop myself from saying it, but Israel becomes oppressed, and then that evokes a cry out to God from the people. God, we're being oppressed, Uh, folks have taken over, we are dying, our pets' heads are falling off, and now we need you back in our lives. The Mosquito Bites joke worked, but you guys don't know anything about, what's that movie? Dumb and Dumber, thank you, good grief. Okay. And then God, in response to this, will raise up a judge who will deliver the people the land will have peace and then it starts all over again because when peace happens, people become complacent and then they start doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. God gives them over to their oppressors. They cry out to the Lord that God raises up a judge. Israel's is delivered and the land has peace. And then we start this all over again and it's like this cycle. But again, it goes down and down and down and it gets worse and worse and worse. The book of Judges, it deconstructs because of this structure. It wants us to see how terrible things are. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn them uh, to Judges chapter 10. We're going to be spending some time with the text this evening. I don't have a a ton of slides, but I just want to read through some of the Bible with you this evening to try to make some sense of it. There's going to be a good bit of teaching before we get to our, um, really our focal point for the evening. In Judges chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. You might have a header that says Jephthah above that. Jephthah is the judge that is going to be uh, involved in this cycle. It says, again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and you can plot them on this cycle. Again, Israel falls into sin and idolatry, but here in Judges chapter 10, it really ups the ante because this is the first time the author has given us so much information as to what these folks were doing. It says they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths Um, Some people would say that those might represent the male and female fertility gods. There's a lot of really cool ancient Near Eastern discussions about what these uh, things represent here. But basically, you just need to tuck this one away. They are serving foreign gods, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. All told, those are seven uh, different gods that these people are following. And because the Israelites forsook or abandoned the Lord and no longer served Him, the Lord becomes angry with them. He sells them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. I don't know what your translation says here, but in the Hebrew, this is a really cool wordplay where um, it says that He is shattering and crushing them, or ra'atzin and ratsatzin. So there's this play, this assonance within the text where where God is shattering and crushing through the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. For 18 years they're oppressed, and all of the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead were oppressed, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. So here we're basically seeing these folks were destroying people on the east side of the Jordan and on the west side of the Jordan. God was um, allowing them to to get a foothold into these areas. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God by serving the Baals. But the Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, and the Philistines, the Sidonians, and the Amalekites, and the Mannites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? Check this, you have forsaken me and served other gods. I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Not the picture that we have of the ever faithful God who is running after us, as the song says. Here in the Old Testament, God is kind of backing away saying, I'm done playing this game. And we see this sometimes in the Old Testament where the people are are trying to go about their business. And God's like, listen, uh, everything that you're bringing to me is, is just false. You have injustice and you have blood on your hands. Your worship, it's garbage. I don't want it. And here he's saying, you serve all these other gods and I hear your cries to me, but they're not legit. You don't want anything to do with me. All you want is to be okay. And we could pause there for a moment and we could maybe assess our prayer life a bit. And our relationship with Jesus, if we are following him because we are transformed sons and daughters of the most high God, or if we cry out only when we need something or want something. But here in this text, God is like, I'm I'm done with what's going on. But the Israelites respond to the Lord. It says, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us. And then they put their money where their mouth is. They got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And then there's this really weird text in the book of Judges. And I don't want to bore you with all the details, but there's a couple of different ways that you could translate this. The NIV says, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. And a lot of people would think that that means that God becomes overcome with compassion and he relents. But God noticed throughout this text is noticeably absent, which has led some people to wonder if he is just so sick of it, that he just backs away. He can't take it anymore. The word there uh, that means misery, it can also mean work or toil. So you could potentially read that as he cannot bear Israel's attempts to win him over anymore. And he has to back away. Remember, this sort of fits within the overall structure of the book of Judges because it is worse on top of worse. And things just keep spiraling down out of control. And that's the point. These people do not get it. So this is happening and on the cycle, you are expecting God to raise up a judge. But here in this passage, he doesn't do that. Doug's in the balcony. It just had a big red X on the spot where it says God raises up a judge because God does not, in fact, raise up a judge. Instead, what happens is when the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. This is in Gilead. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head. They will be Rosh, say Rosh. This is important. They will be Rosh over all who live in Gilead. They will be the leader. They will be the president. They will be the chief. Where is God in this picture? He's gone. The people just begin to say to themselves, we've got to do something, the leaders of Gilead. And they say, whoever will go up for us and battle for us will become our Rosh, we'll become our leader, will become our head, we will follow them. God is nowhere in this picture whatsoever. This is the backdrop before we meet Jephthah. And Jephthah gets a beautiful introduction in the Hebrew text. It says in chapter 11, where we're gonna be spending most of our time, that's a lie, we're gonna be spending, we're, we've already spent too much time in chapter 10, so whatever. <laughs> We're going to get through this story. This is chapter 11. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. And in Hebrew, like when you see this, or even when you're reading in English, like hopefully some literary flags are going up for you. The first time you meet someone, the characteristics and the attributes that are attached to them, they're important. So what we learn about Jephthah is a couple of things. He is a mighty warrior, He is someone not to be messed with on the battlefields. And he's the son of a prostitute. Those are two important things that characterize Jephthah's ministry. The bit about him being born of a prostitute is important because his brothers of the same father look at him with disdain and say, I don't want to share my inheritance with this guy whose mom is of ill repute. This is what they say when they're just talking trash to one another you son of a woman of ill repute, okay? Um, But see here, this is what's happening. They don't want this person to have anything to do with the inheritance, so they kick them out. They kick Jephthah out of the family, if you will, and he flees into, get this, the land of Tov. In Hebrew, Tov means good and pleasant, The prostitute's kid gets kicked out of the family. He doesn't get any sort of inheritance and it's not on his plate. He is a warrior of all warriors. He's not gonna get inheritance and he leaves and goes to the land of Tov, the land of pleasantness and goodness. And it says there that he surrounds himself with men, let me see if I can get this, with a gang of scoundrels who gather around him and they follow him and they create havoc together. So the son of the woman of ill repute and his gang of scoundrels, this is like back in the 1920s, we've all got our great Gatsby garb on when we're talking about this story. And these, the men of ill repute are going around, they're prancing around like this and they're creating havoc within the land of goodness and everything is going crazy. And this is when the Ammonites show up on the scene, this, this power to the south of Gilead and they start flexing their muscles and saying, listen, we are going to destroy you because this land is not yours, this land is ours. And the Gileadites begin to say, what are we gonna do? Talking to God doesn't work because God says, listen, I'm kind of done with you guys. You've, you've tried to go about this in the wrong way, I'm just, whatever. And they say, I know what we should do. Do you remember the son of the woman of ill repute? I heard that he's hanging out now with a bunch of scoundrels and they're creating havoc in the land of Tov. And I've heard that he is a, a great warrior and he's, a, he's mighty and powerful. And I hear that he's just doing whatever he wants. Maybe we could get him to come and not be our Rosh, but to be our chief, our Katsin. those Hebrew authors, they are really throwing in some details here. We don't want this son of the prostitute to be our head or our leader or our president. That would be too much, but he is a scoundrel and he can help us out in this particular circumstance so he can lead the army against these people and deliver us. And I bet God would be cool with that. (laughs) So here we meet Jephthah, and they pitch him this deal, and he said, listen, bros, kind of literally, you threw me out here in the land of Tove, and I've been having a nice time with the scoundrels, but how am I supposed to trust you that you'll take me back, and not only that you'll take me back, but that you'll let me be your president, for lack of a better term? Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? And the elders say to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now, come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be Rosh. And Jephthah sweetens the deal. And we think, and we have read this as this pious moment in Jephthah's story. He's got a couple of them where we think that he's really doing what's right. He says, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord, you know, Yahweh, you know, the one that you're praying to now, even though the story kicks off saying that they're following the gods of the Philistines and the Amorites and the Mosquito Bites and the was a watchman, like they're following all these gods here. But, but Jephthah is trying to sweeten the pot by saying, if God signs off on this, if we involve him, you can't get out of it. And they say, sure, whatever. You and your scoundrels, come on back. We need some help. And this sets up this passage, and before we get to the big part, I think that you need to see something that's important in this passage. The way that Jephthah begins to lead, he says, okay, deal. And he immediately asserts power. But the way that he does that, we've only heard him to be this Gabor Chayil, this mighty warrior. But here, he doesn't go with big swords and spears into the Ammonite army. Instead, he writes letters that are really well-worded. He becomes like a, a rhetorician here, and his speech within the book of Judges is unparalleled. This is the scoundrel, just the scoundrel son of the prostitute shows up and you expect him to go into the camp with swords and, and chariots, but he says, dictation please, let me write a letter. <laughs> and he pens this beautiful piece where he says, listen friends, I'm British and you think That you have access and right to this land, but you don't. I'm slipping into Australian. (laughs) The history of this is such that Yahweh gave us this land. You have no right to it. Get out my face. Unless, of course, you think that Yahweh is to be toiled with. Do you think that you're better than Yahweh or the gods of the past or the kings of the past Like Jephthah is throwing this on super thick over 15 or so verses. He's he is being a a wordsmith attempting to get his way to manipulate people in order to, to have his way, which at this point is so that he can be Rosh, so that he can be president, so that he can go back home. But the people, when they receive this letter, the Ammonites, they say, no dice, sir. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message that Jephthah is sending him. And this is where things go terribly wrong. They've already been wrong up to this point. Let us not forget that. But this is the classic moment in Jephthah's story that has been forgotten for many of us or maybe not even ever heard in the first place. This is the strangest part of the story because God has been noticeably absent. And this is the only time that God acts upon Jephthah in this, in this story here. And it says, then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. This is happening all throughout Judges. The spirit of the Lord shows up on people and empowers them to go and do crazy stuff. Usually it's in military situations where the spirit of the Lord comes upon them and then they go and they destroy people. And we kind of like as 21st century pacifist wannabe Americans, we say, well, that's interesting. I don't quite know what to do with that. But here in this passage, we have something similar. The spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. We don't know how to to make sense of this in light of the story because it seems as though God has left. And the rest of the story kind of demonstrates that to be true as well. He crosses uh, Gilead and Manasseh and passes through Mizpah of Gilead. In other words, he is going to, to, to raise up an army. And from there, he advanced against the Ammonite warriors And Jephthah then makes a vow because he doesn't feel the spirit. He doesn't intuit the spirit. He doesn't realize that the spirit is with him. He doesn't realize that God is is kind of involved here to some degree. So he makes a vow to the Lord, which is stupid because he says, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, Lord, person that I may or may not have talked to, person where I am uh, one who is, completely embedded within this Canaanite structure of following other gods. Lord, if you would give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be yours and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Jephthah, empowered by the Spirit, says, I'm not quite so sure about this. Let me default into winning you over with words because I'm a rhetorician. Even though I'm the son of a woman of ill repute and I have a band of scoundrels, I have talked my way out of a many barroom brawl. And here, Lord, what I would like to do is to ensure my success with a vow where I will give to you whatever comes out of my house It will be yours and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth as far as Abel, Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. This is all good news. But when Jephthah returned home to Mizpah, read that first line there. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, he is no longer... He is no longer in the land of Tov. He is no longer with this band of scoundrels. He has been reinstituted back home, no longer to be viewed as the son of a prostitute. He is now in Mizpah, the cultural center of Gilead. That's huge. And he, when he returns home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And there's all sorts of overtones here back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac as the only child of Abraham. And we see this also being replayed here with Jephthah. His daughter comes out dancing to the sound of timbrels. This is what you do when warriors come back from military battles. The town would leave their homes and the women would sing and dance and have tambourines and timbrels. She was an only child except for her. He had neither son nor daughter. And when he sees her, he tears his clothes and cries. And we begin to think, well, maybe Jephthah's not so bad. And he says, oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down. Oh no, why did you do that? I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break Note the contrast. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said, give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. Note the contrast. Jephthah and his band of scoundrels living in the hills of Gilead creating havoc. And now the only daughter of Jephthah sentenced to die because her dad is an idiot is now roaming the hills and weeping, not with her family, but with her friends, because she will never be able to marry. Not only that, she will never be able to have children and have a family. She is destined to be alone and to die at the hands of her father. And he says, you can go. And he let her go for two months and she and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. Five words in the Hebrew. It's as terse as it can be stated. When she returns, he does to her what he vowed he would do to her. And she was a virgin She was a woman of marriageable age, yet not able to be married because of the decisions that her dad had made. And flashback to the downward spiral of the book of Judges, and it's all coming unraveled to this one person named Jephthah who shows us how ignorant and obstinate the people can be and the effects that that has. The story concludes, uh, even though Jephthah, his only daughter, will be and and was executed, he has no family now because he's alone and he will die and no one will carry on his name. In the ancient Near East, you continue to live through your family. And if you don't have family and if you don't have land, your death is like a super death. You are really dead. It, it can't be undone because there's no one to live on after you. And now Jephthah is going to be really dead, but his daughter, it says. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. He did to her as he had vowed. And you can flashback and think, well, maybe Jephthah, because it's the ancient Near East, maybe Jephthah thought that the first thing out of his house would be like a sheep or or like a lamb or something that that could be potentially sacrificed. And scholars have, have dealt with that, but this would overestimate the virtue of Jephthah in this story. He doesn't seem to have any. One should not expect too much from this man who made a name for himself as a brigand in the hills of Gilead, so says Daniel Block. Another commentator, Victor Matthews, says he must have known And this really ups the ante. He must have known that members of his household would lead the celebratory processions and would therefore be subject to his vow. Again, Daniel Block, Jephthah was so determined to achieve victory over the Ammonites that he was willing to sacrifice his own child to gain a divine guarantee. Bro was only out for himself in this passage. And we see that from the very beginning. And we can look back and say he was cast out because he was a son of the woman of ill repute. He did not have good cards on the table, but the decisions that he is making throughout this story are only about him and his own success and his own advancement, so much so that he may have been willing to sacrifice his own daughter knowingly. The character of Jephthah in this narrative, it fits this explanation of what is going on here, but the literary artistry that we see in this retelling, the contrast that we see between Jephthah as this complete I don't even have the good word for him. This person who doesn't get it, who is, who is uh, so syncretistic that he is worshiping these other gods and not really paying much attention to Yahweh that might even be willing, as they do in other religions, to sacrifice his own child for the sake of Yahweh's approval. Note, in this story, Yahweh is silent. There is no approval over any of this. Yahweh has backed away from the scene. There is no interchange here. We just see Jephthah going uh, and doing these things and the commentator or the narrator is not giving us any sort of yes or no, but when you read, the no is so big on the page that it cannot be seen in any other way. God is not on board with any of this, but the literary artistry that we see between Jephthah and his daughter is striking. I'll also say this too, and it's not as though we had to churn up the emotions, and I'm coming to a close here, but this quote almost had me like rolling on the ground, not doing well when I came upon it, and that's a weird reaction for me when it comes to commentaries, but Daniel Block again says, when she, this girl, sees her father approaching with natural childlike exuberance, she picked up her timbrels and danced out to greet him. And then the guy really starts playing with our emotions. The victory over the Ammonites may have made Jephthah a military hero, but to this young girl, he was a hero simply because he was her dad. And this is how he treats her. Only looking out for himself, only wanting his own gain, and will go and stop at no costs to get it. There's an altogether different character when we see this girl who, when she talks to her father, she approaches him and speaks to him as family. My father do whatever it is that you must do. She's the one that's looking out for the traditions. She's the one that's looking out for him to not break an oath, which was a big deal back then, but there were other ways of going about this, but still she is, she is um, demonstrating herself to be a person of character where her dad is not so much. So that her story becomes a tradition in Israel where people go out and commemorate her life for four days as the women leave and remember her story and remember the fact that her life was cut short because of the the ridiculousness of her father. She was not able to have a family or to have kids and they mourned this this, um, lack of family for her and she becomes a tradition in Israel, but for us, she's forgotten. For us, this story doesn't get a lot of play because admittedly, it doesn't have a lot of direct application. Don't make dumb vows. But when you start going beyond that, and this is where I feel like my 36-year-old white middle-class maleness is going to show pretty heavily here. But the fact that this young woman faced abuse, the fact that this young woman was killed, the fact that this young woman's life was stopped short because of her dad, There are people, perhaps people even in this room that have faced abuse that might be similar to this sort of extravagant behavior where your life has been stopped short, maybe not literally, but at least metaphorically, where you feel stunted because of the way that people have treated you. These are the untold stories that people like me really have no right to be talking about, but this is the best that we got in this moment. And this is, this is important for us to begin to, to look back and to see she became a tradition. People remembered her story. We have largely forgotten, and at least is open up to the criticism that we also forget the stories of the people around us who have been mistreated in similar ways, male and female. When we talk about half the church, the important and often untold stories of women, it's time that we begin going back to some of these texts. There's a lot of them that are, absolutely terrifying when you read them, but there's also a lot of them that are redemptive and beautiful and highlight the strength and power of women. Man, that sounds sounds really feminist, but I think that we can at least deal with some of that because as we have just gotten past our our, uh, study in the book of Galatians, what Paul is wanting us so desperately to see is that through Christ, There is no longer male and female. And at least in this moment, it's important for us to go back and to read some of these stories that might challenge us, that might make us to think and to reflect on how it is that we are treating people. And it might allow us to even see what is to be gained when these stories are heard in a new light or maybe even for the very first time. I hope tonight and throughout the next few weeks as we lead into Easter is to see Jesus through these stories. This one, there's not a whole lot you can do with it. There's not a lot of redemption that happens there other than to tell the story and to invite people into it, to stare themselves in the mirror and hope to find God not as one who is absent, but one who is recklessly coming after us each and every day. Let's pray. God, sometimes these stories in, uh, in your book are difficult. Tonight, as we have kind of um, wrestled with, with this teaching, um, I know that application has been short, and here I am depending upon your spirit to lead us and guide us. Perhaps this is just new information and us understanding your word in a new way, so be it, but also allow us to begin to think through uh, the implications of this story to see how far gone the people in the book of Judges have truly gone, to question if we too are heading in that direction, to question our own lives and our transformation or lack thereof, to question our commitment to you, to question the way that we treat other people, to question if we are only out for ourselves. God, I know that the the extravagance of this story is probably not super relatable, but the heart of this story might be relatable. We also know that there's people in this room that have faced tragedy and abuse and suffering at the hands of people that they are supposed to trust and love. And God, I understand that there's difficulties there, but I would also uh, hope that you can be the God who restores. Just as the people throughout Judges and throughout the Old Testament begged you and pleaded for you to show up to right the wrongs, to make people whole, we too beg for you to show up to right the wrongs and to make people whole again. And God, if you're inviting us into some of those shared stories with people, may we be bold, may we be willing, may we be sensitive to the move of your spirit, may we be slow to speak and eager to listen, eager to put our arm around someone to comfort them and just to be present in the mess of our lives. God, we ask that through these stories that are going to be both difficult and also beautiful, allow us to see your son, through the book of Judges, there, there seems to be very little hope. The people are doing evil in your sight. And even in this story, it seems as though you're backing away, God, but you did not leave the story there. You entered into our lives and our, our narratives, and you became one of us through your son, and you sacrificed yourself so that we could experience life and wholeness. And God, we are thankful that we can experience that here and now. God, we ask that you would open up our eyes, help us to be malleable and help us to be conformed into your image each and every day, even when it's trying and even when it's difficult and even when we have a lot of baggage that we need to put down. Would you empower us to do that? And would we experience something that helps us to feel your peace? We ask these things all in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of TRP's podcast. The Restoration Project is a church affiliated with a Cooperative Baptist Fellowship located in Salisbury, Maryland. If you're in the area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sundays at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, we believe that there is room for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for past teachings, feel free to check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com slash SBY. Or to make it easier, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We hope to see you soon.